Let's turn to John chapter 18 as we continue to move through the gospel of John. And when I started this, I wanted you to remember that the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospels, I want to remind you of this. The other Gospels focus more on what Jesus did and said and that sort of thing. The Gospel of John focuses more on who Jesus is. Shows him in his inward self, who he is. The other Gospels sort of emphasize his humanity. This Gospel emphasizes his divinity. And you're going to see that show up here. One of the things that you uh, at least confused me, and maybe you need to know, and because I needed to know it, as I started reading the Gospels, I always wondered why you had to have a, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, you know, you had to have a side-by-side list, what's it called, uh, of, of the Gospels to show you everything Jesus was. Because I thought, or uh, everything Jesus did, because I thought each one was a historical account of Jesus' life. Not true. This one's not written to give you a chronology of everything that Jesus did. This one's to show us that Jesus is divine. John wrote this. And you remember I said this and have said it several times. The Gospel of John is multi-layered. We could study it and study it and study it and still not plumb its depths. But one of the themes that comes out of the Gospel of John, and it's important for today, is that he makes seven I am statements. And you say, what do you mean I am statements? Well, in Exodus 3 at the burning bush, Moses was asking God, who do I tell the people you are? And he said, tell them I am. It's the name of God, the eternal name of God. And Jesus fills in the blanks, so to speak, of who God is by saying, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And I'm the true vine. And he gives us these pictures of who he is and what he does for us and through us by God's power. He also gives us, John does in this book, several signs. I think he calls them signs, not miracles, on purpose. Because although they're real things that really happened, there's something behind it that gives you a spiritual lesson. Like, for instance, you know, when you go out here and you look at a sign, a red thing, and it says, stop. And you come to the corner and you you stop because you know behind that sign is a statute or a code that says if you go through that thing, you're going to get a ticket. There's things behind it, not just the sign. And I think that's why uh, John uses them here. He changes water to wine. He heals a nobleman's son in John chapter 4. He cures uh, a paralytic at the pool of Bethesda in 5. Feeding of the 5,000 in six, walks on the Sea of Galilee in six, giving of sight to a blind man, raising of Lazarus from the dead, 
And he brings up a miraculous catch of fish. And oh, of course, we're going to get to it. He raises himself from the dead, or he's raised from the dead. You see some signs here now in this book, or this gospel. Well, now we are getting uh, to the end of the upper room discourse. And I wonder if we have the map of Jerusalem. There we go. So I'm going to put that back there and just leave it there as we read through this. And if you've been to Jerusalem with us, this is a place where your mind knows all of these places that we're going to talk about. You've walked these places. I was speaking with Carol earlier this morning, and we were talking about being in Jerusalem. And one of the things that's striking about being in Jerusalem is that Mount of Olives and that temple aren't very far apart. My whole life, I thought they were way... Is that good English? Okay, way far apart. I mean, really far apart. It's not. You can see right over there, and you, you're just a part of it. It's amazing. Anyway, listen to this. In John chapter 18, follow along with me as I read some of it, not all of it, and then we're going to go through it. But we're now finishing the upper room discourse. Has he been already walking from the upper room, which is there, around there, over to the Mount of Olives, past the temple? Or is he now starting to walk there? Uh, whatever. People disagree about whether he was walking halfway through the discourse or not. Anyway, it says this in John chapter 18, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, what words? The entire thing of the upper room discourse, the entire um, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 of the chapters, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. These are all important words. Pay attention to them very strictly. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Now in my Bible, it has some italics, he. But he's saying, I am, right there. The same phrase that we've been talking about. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, isn't that interesting? Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying which might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who uh, was, uh, or excuse me, who was uh, the high priest of that year. 
Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Do me a favor and just let's pray one more time together. Lord, help us today to think on, uh, see, take in what you would have for us uh, as your son is approaching the cross here. We just ask that you'd bless this time and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's do this. Let's, let me tell you something. Uh, so uh, here's how I started uh, my, if you want to call it career. <laughs> I started as a divorce lawyer and a criminal defense lawyer. Can you imagine having to do that job? <laughs> but the first thing is uh, I passed the bar in 1992 and uh, I go and sign up. They asked me to go over here. Uh, I was in a firm full of prosecutors. And they said, well, here, to get some experience, I want you to go over and sign up the court-appointed attorney or court-appointed list over the court. So I did, and about a two weeks later, I get a call. And uh, it was from the court, and it was a real serious felony crime. And I, here I am, fresh out of law school. I was scared to death. And I go back over, and they said, oh, you, you know, my guys who told me they'd help me, well, you'll figure that thing out. Just take care of it. And by January, here I am in court in a felony trial, four counts felony trial. And boy, was it scary. One of the things I came to learn, and maybe uh, you, if you're in the criminal justice system, uh, you come to learn and you come to know, and people who evaluate the, the trials and the criminal justice system, uh, maybe you've been in a grand jury or had to testify in some way, is this. You know that if all the witnesses' stories match exactly, something's going on. There's been collusion. <laughs> I mean, think about it. If we were out on this street and somebody was at the Westie Diner and somebody was down by the, or, you know, the rails, uh, down at the railroad or the tracks, and somebody was out here on the front, por or, or front porch of our church, etc., and we saw a car crash down here maybe... Uh, in front of, uh, you know, what was formerly a funeral home, the parking lot on 837 there. If you took each of those people and put them before the grand jury, they're going to say basically the same thing, but their details are going to be different. I mean, you know, the guy at the railroad or the gal down at the railroad tracks or coming up that street is going to see it from a different angle than the person at the Westie Diner or somebody here. And so often what you get is... Yes, very similar testimony, but it's different because it's from different perspectives. Well, you see, that's the gospel or the gospels. I always think of it, you know, that game you used to, well, anyway, but, uh, you know, when you put your hand on top, you ever had your family and you just sort of put your hand on top? Well, you get most of it right, but some sticking out over here, some sticking out over there, and that's sort of what the gospels are like. You get different details in different uh, gospels until you can come up with the whole. One of the things I've done is I put together a timeline of Jesus's last hours and the seven trials that Jesus uh, went to on the night uh, on which he was betrayed. And if you want that, I could email that to you uh, because there are several. And But if you're looking just in the book of John, you're not gonna find them all. <laughs> You have to search all the Gospels. That shouldn't be a problem for you. That should bless your socks off because you know the Gospel writers 
we're doing something inspired by the Holy Spirit and not in cahoots with one another. Get it? Here's what I'm talking about. When Jesus had spoken these words, the things that he was talking in the upper room, he went out with his disciples over the book Kidron. Now watch. He had to leave the upper room and come through the Kidron Valley, and he look what he had to do. He had to traverse right by the temple. And so most people, many people believe that's why he spoke of the true vine. Why? Because on the gates of the temple that was back then, there were these massive vines on the temple gates. And you know that this was during the Passover, which was generally a uh, full moon type of week. And so during the nighttime, it would be shimmering and shining those vines. And so he used that. And as he's walking uh, toward the garden, he goes to the brook Kidron. Now, Kidron is an interesting word. You should probably know it. And if you don't know it, wake up right here. You need to know it. (laughs) And that's this. Kidron means dark or murky. Dark or murky. You understand, and I confirmed this with our guide, that there was over 2.5 million people in the city at this time. If you've been to this city, you're going to go, what? 2.5 million people? How in the world would they fit in that city? And I'm not talking about Jerusalem now with the sprawling, you know, metropolitan area. I'm talking about the city of, uh, uh, you know, the old city here. 2.5 million people. Josephus tells us that 20 years after the time of Jesus. So we get a good idea of how many people would have been there. Somewhere between 2 million and 2.5 million. Which means if, and I can't do math. So if you criticize my math, I don't want to hear it. (laughs) That means... One Passover lamb was sacrificed for, on average, 10 people. So you're talking about, during the time of Passover, somewhere of about 200,000 animals being sacrificed at the temple area. I just want you to think about that for a minute. Imagine the smells and the shrieks. And so what they had to do was they had to build an aqueduct, and the aqueduct came down and emptied into the Kidron Brook. And it is truly a brook. It's like a Jerusalem, or excuse me, like an Israeli wadi. A wadi is something that's you see it. It's like a creek bed, and during the summertime, it's dry. But during the rainy seasons, it can fill up. And that's what this brook is, the brook Kidron. It's not very big. It's not like the Mississippi River. It's like a little creek or crick, depending on where you come from. But it means, listen, dark or murky. Which I'm wondering, as Jesus is walking there, what he's feeling and thinking. Because Paul tells us he is our Passover lamb. And Jesus here is marching to the cross. And he crosses over that Brook Kidron, and now you go up these gentle slopes, and it says where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, you got to think about this. These weren't gardens that were like open-air gardens. Many of the rich people of Jerusalem purchased gardens over on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And somehow, some way, you read it here, they were used to going here, this band of people, the Jesus and his followers. And so he goes in, it appears to be a private garden. Now, in this 
account, remember, this is the Gospels, they don't all tell you the same thing, we don't get that bit where they go in a certain way and a few of his intimate disciples stay and Jesus goes in and comes back and they sleep. We don't get that here. And where we see Jesus, you know, in, you know, that time where he's talking to the Father and he's sweating drops of blood and all that sort of thing. And we don't see that. And why is that? Because this gospel isn't emphasizing his humanity. It's emphasizing his deity. But it does say this, Judas, apparently Judas now, we haven't seen him for several chapters since Jesus had said to him in the upper room, what you're going to do, go do it quickly. Remember that? They haven't seen him since then. Or he hasn't been on the scene since then. Jesus knew what he was talking about between he and Judas. But I want you to think about it. Think about it. The other disciples didn't quite know what Jesus was talking about when he said, what you do, go do quickly. Remember, he's the one with the purse strings. Maybe they thought he was going to buy some things for the past. Whatever. Don't know. But it says here, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place For Jesus often met there. And then Judas Judas received a detachment and he brought out this detachment. Now let's just talk about this for a minute. Judas knew where Jesus would be. See, I keep saying this every week, but until you really internalize this, maybe you're just going to say, could you quit saying it every week? But the point is, What John is doing here is contrasting the total goodness and grace and majesty and dignity of God's kingdom with the total depravity and evil and dark heart of man's religious system and man at its worst. And he contrasts it here. Here you have Jesus going across, out of the upper room, crossing a bloody wadi. And he's going up the Mount of Olives. And you think to yourself, if you study the Old Testament and you do the two-year Bible and you go, you know, right in line and you get to 2 Samuel 15 and it goes, whoa, wait a second. It evokes memories of something that happened thousand years prior or so. And that's when this happened. David had a son. You all know this name, Absalom. You can read about this in 2 Corinthians, or, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 15. And Absalom decided he was going to be the man in charge and not his dad, David. He sat at the city gate, got the people to like him, and David actually fled, rejected by his own. Where did he flee? Right across the uh, Kidron uh, uh, Wadi or uh, Creek and up to the Mount of Olives. Isn't that interesting? And here Jesus comes all these years later, rejected by his own, marching to his death. Wow. So they go there. We have this Judas who comes on the scene. And there was a garden. Why do you think John put that in there? Why does he want you to know he was in a garden? Because the whole story of the Bible wraps around a garden. 
The whole story of the Bible. You're walking, Adam and Eve are walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. And just, you know, God says, just, you know, have all you want. I don't care. Just, I'm going to bless your socks off. Anything you want out there, just this one tree, just stick, stay away from it. And they decide that they're going to rebel against God in a garden. And the end of the Bible says, Revelation 22, we're going to reside with him in eternal garden, so to speak. But in order to get there, there had to be a death and resurrection that sprung out of this garden. Isn't that fascinating? It's the whole weave and beauty of the Bible right here. There's a garden which he and his disciples entered, a private garden. Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place. Remember, they knew the place. Judas knew the place. Fascinating. I want you to see something. I want you to, and myself, I want us to examine our lives. You can be so close to the Lord. You can hear all the sermons. You can know where people pray. You can know where people do the hymn sing. You can put money in the box. You can serve on all the committees 40, 50 years. And if it's just there and it's not there, you miss the whole thing. And here Judas does it. But I want you to see something beautiful. Judas knew he would be there praying and he would take his followers there. And it's such a reminder to you and I. Where do you think people say you'll be? when the chips are down? Will you be out in the, you know, uh, extracurricular activities that your kids have, you know, debating and talking among the people about what I should do and where I should go? Are you going to be in the place of prayer? Here, they knew where Jesus would be when the hard times came. They knew he would be there with prayer and he would bring his disciples along Oh, man, I want to be a person where people know where I'll be. Don't you? Depending upon the Lord, walking with the Lord, praising the Lord, loving the Lord. So here he's there. They knew the place for Jesus was there and his disciples would come there. And he brought a detachment of troops. Now, this word in the Greek is telling us that there was a Basically, he had access, Judas did, to 600 Roman soldiers. If you go do the Greek wording and all that sort of thing, he, he had access to 600 Roman soldiers to come with him to the garden. If you've ever been in that garden, you're like, 600 soldiers? I mean, it would fill up the entire place and probably not be enough space. Did he take 600 soldiers? I don't know, but he had access to them and he took several of them. And what John is trying to show you is the ridiculousness of it. This is ridiculous, John is saying, in a, a way that you would awe, be in awe and wonder of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do I mean? He had a detachment of troops and he had officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. By the way, the chief priests and the Pharisees would come from two separate pseudo-religious sects, the Pharisee sect and the Sadducee sect. And what's interesting about that, they were enemies. But when it comes to per persecuting and killing Jesus, they bound together. Isn't that interesting? The worst thing that man could do, we see right here, the blackest of hearts. They came there with lanterns, torches, 
and weapons. What's fascinating about that is you probably could already see. If it was Passover, then the moon was very bright and it shone on the hillside. What they were expecting many people surmise is that they were going to have to look for Jesus in the nook and crannies of the garden or the Mount of Olives. And what I want you to see is, again, the Holy Spirit by John is showing you how ridiculous men could be, humankind can be. Because why? Because Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, look at this. Here's the beauty and majesty of all that Jesus did for us. All these soldiers, all these religious people traipsing across from the temple areas up into the Mount of Olives with all these lanterns and the clanging and the, the, the armor and the, you know, the, the weaponry. You'd hear it. You'd see it. You'd see it coming. If he wanted to run, he could. But as soon as he gets there, watch. The writer says to you on purpose, says to me on purpose, Jesus came forward. In other words, you don't have to search in the nooks and crannies. Here I am, ready to do what my Father has called me to do. That's what this is saying to you. He went forward and said to them, well, whom are you seeking? Don't you love Jesus? I am so good at talk with people about things that don't matter. (laughs) You want to talk about West Virginia football? I could talk about West Virginia football. Yes, right. Things that don't matter. But what I'm saying, you, I can talk about this, I can talk about that. I can talk about this. I, you know, jack of all trades in some sort. But you asked me about machines. I don't know anything about that. But, but here's the thing. Here's Jesus with spiritually provocative Speech. Whom are you seeking? He's trying to draw it out of them. He's giving them more chances. Whom are you seeking? And they said, well, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, well, I am. The italics in there are added so that we would understand who he was saying it was about. That's another story. What he's saying here is he's I am the one. I am the eternal one. Remember, John is writing to express his deity, to show us our deity. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he had said to them, I am, the name God said to call God, the Father, they drew back and fell to the ground. Clang, 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 clang. Lanterns flying, spears flying, knives flying. Can you imagine? However many there were, there were many. They all fell to the ground. What is this all about? Well, no one really knows. I mean, is this part of uh, Jesus unveiling his deity sort of like at the Mount of Transfiguration? Maybe. Or maybe they're just so astounded at the authority and the majesty and the settledness and the stability spiritually of a person who is facing death, that it just overwhelms them. I don't know. But clearly here, he says, I am twice, and they draw, uh, draw back and fall to the ground. And look at this. Watch this. Don't miss it. He asks them again. 
If somebody was coming after you to kill you, would you give him a chance? See, that's the point. He's in control. He has them on trial. Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. And Jesus answered, well, I've told you that I'm he. I mean, how much more plain can I be? Not only am I Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, I'm having trouble today, I am the Lord God himself in the flesh. Wow. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Let these go their way, that the saying may be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And that comes from earlier in the book of John. He said that would happen. This is fascinating. He refers to Peter here as Simon Peter. Why is he doing that? I think why he's doing that in, uh, uh, in the writing and, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit is that here Peter is as a follower of Christ operating in the flesh. And so he calls him by his former name too, Simon Peter. And what does he do? He has a sword and he drew it and he struck the high priest servant. What in the world... What in the world is Peter doing with the sword, a little knife? What is he doing? Well, I don't know if you remember this, but in a different gospel, as they're starting to arrive at this point uh, in Matthew, Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. Times are going to be really tough for you. I want you to go sell all your knapsacks and stuff, and I want you to buy a sword. He actually says that in the scriptures, but I don't think he was speaking like literally. What he was saying was, you're going to have to fight now, the real fight, the real battle. But Peter, just like me, he runs out to the local weapon store and buys a sword. And it's so ridiculous here. He draws it and he strikes the high priest's servant. And the servant's name was Malchus. Now, nobody else in the Gospels knows that it was, his name was Malchus. And here in a little bit, you're going to see that the writer of this gospel, John, had access to the high priest's courtyard, okay? Peter, of course, is going to go there, and he's going to sort of be identified because he just hit a servant with the knife. John probably got him in there, or he was being, you know, looked at by the authorities. John probably got him in there, and many say this, that, and this is extra biblical now, that John's family, you know, this isn't extra biblical, had a successful fishing business, but about 65 miles to the north in Galilee. And generally, you would eat the fish fresh, but they had a salted fish business, apparently, they found from extra biblical evidence, maybe not necessarily they found John's family doing that, but they surmised that John's family was exporting this salted fish all the way down to Jerusalem, and maybe he was feeding the uh, high priest and therefore he had access. Why else would John know all of these intimate details inside the courtyards? Something for you to think about and be a Berean about. Anyway, he strikes the high priest's servant and he cut off his right ear, and Jesus says to Peter, I would have said it like this, what are you doing? Put your sword into your sheath. Probably didn't say that that way, but he said, hey, put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Shall I not drink the cup which my father 
has given me. In other words, Peter is going to do the way that we want to do it. Fight and battle, you know, physically and, you know, get back at people and, oh, they said something mean on Fox News today or MSNBC today, so I'm going to give it back to them. I might even put something on my Facebook page. That'll show all of them. I might even put some scriptures up there, man. What's interesting is the Bible says in the Proverbs that zeal without knowledge is really destructive. You know that? We can be zealous for the Lord sometimes and be the absolute meanest people on the face of the earth. And here, Simon Peter, operating in the flesh, took out a sword. I just find it interesting that in the Bible, the Word of God is pictured as a sword. And he just lops off somebody's ear with it. And Jesus says, wait, wait a second, what are you doing? What are, what are you doing? The way is not to fight the way you think we're supposed to fight. The way we're going to fight is I'm going to drink the cup which my father has given me. The cup of what? The cup that was given to him. He was going to, listen to this, watch, watch, folks. Delight in the will of the Father, no matter what. He's the captain of our salvation. We're the, or, uh, the private people, I mean, in the army, in the military. He's the captain. We're under him. We do what he says. We accept the perfect and pleasing will of the Father, the good and pleasing will. That will, that's what we want, just like Jesus did. And Jesus said, this is going to be hard, and this is going to be difficult, because the cup is the cup of wrath that's going to be poured out on me at the cross. But if I don't do that... Nothing will ever happen in which you can get back to the Father. Do you remember in John 17, he said in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. His, look, watch, watch, his overriding passion of his life was to do the will of the Father. Not to fight like people fight, in the world, like the world fights in the flesh, boom, 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 but to submit to God's will. And this had such an impact on Peter. In 1 Peter 2, I'm going to go back there and read this to you. In 1 Peter 2, he says this, verse 23. This had a big impact. He's talking about Jesus. Uh, I'll go to 22. Uh, Leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Watch, watch this. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judged judges righteously. I, I, I just want you to see something here. When you're walking according to the Spirit, no one's saying you can't have opinions about political processes and all that sort of thing, but when you're walking according to the Spirit, you are submitted to the will of the Father no matter what. 
And sometimes, look at this, folks, it gets really hard. Hard. He calls you into deep waters. And he asks you to do things that are very difficult. But why would you not be called into that if your master was called into that? Of course you would be. It's where we come together in the fellowship of his, or in, and receive fellowship with him as we suffer like he suffers, or as we go through tribulation like he goes through tribulation. Here, Peter's walking in the flesh and doing it the way we would do it. Cut him down. Chop him. Jesus says, no, the way that we're going to fight is we're going to be perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. Wow. Here again, the contrast between the way of the world and the way men and women think they ought to operate and the way God's timetable or uh, the way God's economy works. Well, then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. That's almost comical. They're binding him up. And you know what's funny about this? Those cords or there's ropes or whatever. They were binding him because they were mad and angry and wanted to prosecute him and do all these things. He willingly bound himself in cords of love. And they led him away to Annas first. Now remember when I was talking about the differences in the Gospels? This, this is in no other gospel right here. This is in no other gospel. You need to know that. That he went to the former high priest first. That was his first trial. Can you imagine if, you know, I was caught for some sort of speeding or, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, some, some infraction, and the, the police came to my house, and I said, well, where are we going? And they said, well, we're going to go over to the former judge's house first and see what he has to say. What would you say? You'd scream bloody murder. You'd be calling your defense lawyer. What do you mean you're taking me to the former judge? Who's the former judge? They were taking him to the former high priest's house, to Annas. Why were they doing that? Annas now, he had served around 680 to about 15 AD. He had four sons and he had a son-in-law named Caiaphas. Caiaphas at the time we're speaking of right now was the real high priest, but Annas was in the background. He was sort of the godfather of high priests. He's running a business here. What he was doing was, remember this? They had to have the perfect sheep, spotless lambs, or whatever, the perfect animal, spotless animal to, to sacrifice up on the temple. Well, what would happen was you'd raise this little lamb, you'd bring him up to the, the priests, some of the priests, and they'd look at it and say, oh, no, 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 that's not spotless. But we got some in the back, and you can have a fine one that you can purchase here. And I know you, it's a, it's a pain because you'd have to go home and maybe get another one, but we got one here. It's a little bit more expensive, but it'll do the trick. That's what was happening. They were also charging, doing the exchange rate for the temple tax in an inappropriate way that advantaged the religious order. In other words, Annas was making tons of money. And he had stopped being the high priest, sort of to run his syndicate here. And they bring him, these detachment of troops, and the people of the Jews, the captain, the officers of the Jews, they bring him and they bring him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caius, who was high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. That's in John 11. Caiaphas, 
the Lord used this math, mouth of this high priest to sort of predict what was the appropriate thing for the sins of the world, that one man should die for all the sins of the world. Isn't that interesting? But here, you don't really get all of what happened at Annas' house. You get some of it. We'll go through it. But he, later on, we'll see, starts receiving initial abuse. This was happening, some people surmise, somewhere between 1.30 and 3 a.m. Here's what had uh, happened. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, verse 15, and so did another disciple. In uh, Luke 22, it says that Simon Peter, again, using both names, was following Jesus afar off. And so did another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest. Apparently John knew the high priest. We discussed it. Was it the fishing business? Maybe, maybe not. And went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. When we went to Jerusalem this year, we went to Caiaphas's residence. I checked with our guide yesterday in Israel and asked him, I never asked you, where's Annas's courtyard? And they don't really know. But they think it's somewhere near Herod's palace. Somewhere in that area was Annas's place because it wasn't too far from Caiaphas's residence. By the way, time out has nothing to do with the sermon. The first time we went to Israel, I never saw this. The second time I went to Israel, this might be my favorite place in all of Israel, Caiaphas's residence. They don't actually know if it was really Caiaphas's residence, and that ain't the cool part. It was pretty cool, but that ain't the cool part. When we went outside, they made a replica of this courtyard we're talking about. That still was pretty cool, but that ain't the cool part. Here's the cool part. After we were done with the courtyard, we walked over a little bit, and there were these stones. It was a walkway. It was a stone walkway, and it was leading to the Mount of Olives. And, I, and it was gated off, and I said, Benny, our guide's Benny. I said, Benny, what is this? I'm like, what? And after he told me, I'm like, why did he never tell me this? You see, when you get to Israel, most of the time when you say, I was where Jesus walked, you really weren't. Jesus walked down here, but the city has been built up so much, you're standing up here. But apparently there was a walkway from this upper city all the way around the temple and leading across the book Kidron, and right beside that Caiaphas' residence, there were the actual rocks that Jesus walked on. Dated from his time period, which we were at the place where we're talking about right now, where they were leading him back and forth between the Mount of Olives and the temple areas and the courtyards. Isn't that fascinating? So they take him here. Simon Peter follows at a distance, and the disciple was known to the high priest. And then Peter stood at the door outside, and then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. In verse 17, and then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, hey, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, watch this, living in the flesh. I'm not. Isn't that interesting? I am not. I'm not. One little boy, famous little boy said this, a lie is an abomination to the Lord, but a very present help in time of trouble. And Peter fell for it. 
here he is walking in the spirit and he just lies just a little bit, just to somebody who's sort of inconsequential and not on the scene. And she comes out and he, she says, no, that wasn't me. Now the servants, verse 18, and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there for it was cold and they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. himself. Now watch this. Here you go, Peter warming himself around the fires of the world. Go with me to the first Psalm, would you? Go to Psalm 1. You probably know it. You probably know it by heart, but read it with me. Blessed is the man, watch this, folks, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. This psalm is a preface to all the psalms, telling us how to be strong and vital in the Lord. And here, there's a progression here. Watch yourself when you're walking according to the flesh. You can get into the wrong counsel, and it can be devastating. And you see it play out right here with Peter. Oh, man, on one hand, we love Peter. And you, you go, wow, Peter, you actually followed the Lord, and you didn't scatter. On the other hand, you learn from Peter, and you go, wait a second. Oh my goodness, I don't want to follow my Lord afar off. And I certainly don't want to walk in the flesh and warm myself at the fires of the world. It can be devastating. And the high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. And Jesus answered him and said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. You know what Jesus is doing right there? The same thing you would do if you got picked up for a crime. He's doing the exact same thing. You're seeing it. He's asking, or he's saying, I don't have to, um, he's saying, I want to follow the dictates of the, the law at the time. And the law at the time said you had a legal right to hear the charges against you by the people who are accusing you. And he says, why are you asking me? The answer or the reason he's saying that is, why aren't you following your procedures? That's what he's asking right there. Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And oh, by the way, for this sort of offense that they were going to commit a capital punishment, you were not supposed to have a trial at night especially with one who's not the judge anymore. You see the absurdity of it all? You see what happens when people get into religion and not relationship with Jesus? The religion can be mean and hateful and can run off the rails and you can lop people's ears off with it. So he goes, and when he had said these things, 22, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand. Bang! saying, do you answer the high priest like that? The heart of men. And Jesus answered, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Can you believe the calm and the assuredness that he is following exactly what the father has asked him to do? And so he doesn't get upset. And we read it earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2. This stuck to Peter his whole life. The way in which he was graceful and dignified in the Holy Spirit kind of way during this entire crisis. Of course, it wasn't a crisis. Jesus had them on trial. And then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, this gospel 
almost completely skips over this second trial where he was led away to current Jewish high priest Caiaphas with others who belonged to the Sanhedrin. That's found in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22. It's only referred to here in John 18. And if you go read these places from about 3 a.m. to 5 a.m., he's put on trial there and bloodied by abuse. That's what happened to our Lord. Now, when Simon Peter, or Simon Peter stood and warmed himself, where was he warming himself now? He was at Caiaphas's residence, which was close to Annas's residence, because they had bound him and gone to Caiaphas, the high priest. And they uh, warmed himself, and they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. And one of the servants, a relative of him, whose ear Peter had cut off, you think this guy would know? He's like, really? Aren't you the one that lopped off my cousin's ear or whoever it is? Didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter then denied. And again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Remember back in John 13, Jesus had predicted this very thing would happen. You'll deny me three times before the cock crows. And in another gospel, I just want you to see this. This is so important. You can go read it. It says when Jesus was coming across the courtyard, their eyes locked for a second. Can you imagine how you would feel, how I have felt when I've let down the Lord? And I always think to myself, and hopefully you, this, this will help somebody here. Hopefully it helps me. The way I think about the way in which Jesus looked at Peter is often a barometer of our spiritual life. Here's why. Most of us, when I just recounted that story in the scripture, said, oh, shoot, I wouldn't want to be in that position. But I don't think Jesus looked at Peter like that. I think Peter looked, or Jesus looked at Peter like, whew, I, I knew this was going to happen. And you're going to be okay. And I'm going to restore you. And I love you. And you're going to be used even though you've fallen and you've fallen hard. But Peter, I had to get that self-reliance, that worldly living out of you. And I hope now what you've learned is that you need to depend on me all the time. And I don't think he was saying it like I'd say it. Don't you? This is a, a call out to all the people who have failed the Lord, if you want to say it that way. Maybe some of you in here are feeling that way. You failed the Lord. The Lord could never use you. You've just been, I can't believe I did that. The Lord's saying to you, no, there's a new day and a new dawn, and my mercies are new every morning, and here's what I want you to do. I just want you to confess it and admit it. Agree with your adversary quickly. Go help and talk to the people that you hurt, or if you hurt anybody, apologize, ask for their forgiveness, and move forward in the Lord. And you know why I think that is? Because what is the message of a rooster crowing? Today's a new day. Today's a new day. So while Jesus predicted it, it's interesting that he used it so that he could take the very thing that was painful to Peter and turn it around for good and joy. Isn't that beautiful? Man, that's the gospel right there. Okay, launch. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. What's the praetorium? It's the residence of the person from Rome who was ruling at the time, which was Pontius Pilate. 
and it was early morning, but they themselves didn't go into the praetorium, uh, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against man? And they answered and said to him, <laughs> this, is, this is funny. <laughs> See, when you're, you're indicting somebody, if you're the prosecutor, you got to give them the specific charge. Here they're saying, "Gah, he's an evildoer. <laughs> they're just being real gentle or general. He's an evildoer. We would not have delivered him up to you. And then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, it's not law for us to put anyone to death. Why? Because two years prior, the Romans had stripped the Jewish uh, nation, Israel, from uh, executing or pronouncing judgment in a capital offense. It was now up to the Romans that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. See, that's really important. I'm going to stop here in a minute because I know you're ready to go. You've got something to do at one o'clock, I'm sure. Anyway, all right. But here's what I want you to know. God used the events of human history to perfection. If you read Psalm 22, just do it today after the Steeler game. Just do it. Read it, Psalm 22, 800 to 1,000 years before, describes crucifixion and that the Messiah would die according to being put on a cross. Well, the funny part about that is crucifixion wasn't even invented at the time. The scriptures predict that the Jewish Messiah is going to be put on a cross. But remember, to the Jews, being put on a tree was a curse. Yes, it was a curse. What, how did they kill people in a capital offense? They stoned people. So this had to happen. That the Roman government stripped them of that duty to execute or that uh, part of executing the judgment so that it wouldn't be stoning, it would be a cross. So that there would be perfect uh, harmony with this, the prophecies. Isn't that amazing? Therefore, the Jews say it's not lawful for us. What the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled. I read that to you. Then 33, Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Remember, when you put all the gospels together, I'm trying to give you the story, but when you put all the gospels together, they brought in one charge, the Jewish people said. They said, hey, this guy said he's going to tear down the temple. He's an insurrectionist. He's, going to, he's a rebel, a guerrilla. He's going to tear down the temple and in three days build it up again. And the Roman people said, well, wait a second. That doesn't matter to us. What do we care if they put your temple down? We don't care about that. And they said, oh, okay. Well, wait a second. Let's get another charge. Can't do that, folks. You can't switch charges during the process. They said, he says he's a king rivaling the one in Rome. You get it? And so we're finding that story right here where Pilate is saying, wait a minute, are you the king of the Jews? And he goes, are you, look at this, this provocative speech spiritually. Are you speaking about this or did others tell you this concerning me? In other words, he wants it to come from the heart of Pilate. And Pilate says, am I a Jew, your own nation, and the chief priest have delivered you to me? What have you done? And Jesus said, well, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I shouldn't be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And lest you think Pilate didn't understand, he didn't understand at all, but he said, wait a minute, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you rightly say that I'm a king. I was born for this, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear a witness to the truth. Everyone is who have the truth hears my voice. But what I want you to see here is Pilate says, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I don't find any fault. I find no fault in him. 
In other words, he didn't violate the law. They're going to prosecute the innocent Passover lamb. This is complete due process wreck. They violated it all. But you have a custom in verse 39 that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release you to you, the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. So they're going to let go a, bara- a, a robber instead of Jesus, the son of God. Well, here, this is the fourth trial here uh, before um, Pontius Pilate. There's a a third trial. You can find it in Matthew 27. A fifth trial is Jesus sent to Herod. We'll talk about that next week. Trial number six is uh, Jesus coming back before uh, Pontius Pilate, which is sort of what we just read there in verse 39. I'm going to read this out, and then we're going to close. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And that's all the Bible says. But that's full. It's pregnant with meaning. After all the physical abuse, and if you put it all together, he was abused. Now he's pinned up, and all of his back is just shredded by a cat of nine tails. He's scourged. And the soldiers twist a crown of thorns, put it on his head, put it on a purple robe, and they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands, Pilate went out again and said to him, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Look at this. He's been through the religious trial. He's been through the governmental or civil trials. You're saying to yourself, I wish you would close. I want you to remember something, though. When we were doing our communion today, we said that The Bible teaches that his death reconciled us to God, justified us, Romans 5.18. Jesus died to sin, Romans 6.8. He died for our sins in 1 Corinthians 15. He became sin for us. In other words, sin was imputed to him in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He gave up his spirit willingly. He laid down his life of his own accord. He reconciled all things. He canceled our sin debt. He brings in the new covenant. He redeems us. He was the propitiation for our sins. And the reason I'm telling you all that is because this is the pinnacle of all history we're reading right now. It's everything we are and we owe everything to him. And if you've been sitting here and you've never given your life to Jesus, well, that's something that should happen today if the Lord's tugging on your heart. Here's another thing. If you're sitting here today and you feel like you've failed Jesus, I got good news for you. It's a new day. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come together and we lift up this day and we thank you for these scriptures which you marched to the cross willingly, which tells us so much. It tells us that we matter to you, Lord, that you would send your son to die for us. 
while we were yet enemies at enmity with you, who would do that, Lord? What king would do that? We're so grateful and thankful. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that wants to come into a relationship with you, I pray that they would pray that in their hearts now. Come see us afterwards. If there's anybody who needs a new start, and I'm raising my hand, I thank you that you give us new mercies every morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.